If you would be turning in your Bibles to Titus chapter 1, we'll finish chapter 1 this morning, verses 10 through 16. And as you're turning there, let me just remind you of a couple of things about uh, where we are in this letter and how this is for the life of the church and for the life of the world. Remember what Crete is. It's just this kind of island. It's a giant rock, and it's got a history of thinking that it is the burial ground of Zeus, and it's got all kind of just weird religious stuff that makes it a really interesting place to try to serve. And in addition to that, it's got people who are called Cretans. And as we're going to see this morning, their poets even do not speak well of them. It's pretty bad, you got to think, when even the poets can't think of something nice to say about you. And uh, it becomes common vernacular for that to be an epithet or a bad word for you to be called a Cretan. In fact, the Greek word for to lie is kretizo after the Cretans because they were known for being liars. And so we're going to see more, of, more about that here in just a moment. And also remember that Paul made it clear that the whole reason that he's doing what he's doing is so that fruit would be born in the lives of those who are the beloved, that those who have faith and knowledge of truth, that they would reflect that outwardly in terms of godliness. And remember that godliness is not a word that we need to be afraid of. I know sometimes when, you, when I hear it, much less when you hear it from up front here. It has some gravity to it that can be fearsome. And yes, we should be in awe and not take the word lightly, but we also do the word a disservice when we make it about something other than the redemptive will of God. When we make it about us, that the godly things that we do could somehow make God love us better. Can, can we do anything to make God love us more than he already has in Jesus? The answer categorically is No. Please hear that, that the godliness that we're called to is not for you even, because you are loved in Jesus. You're loved eternally. The godliness that you're called to is to reflect his glory for the life of the world for those who don't know. So always remember the call to godliness. When you see that word in Scripture, what you're being called to do is reflect what you already know to be true. It's not something that you're going to be tested on. It's actually something you're given every good gift for. Right? How do we display godliness? In the power of the Holy Spirit. How much have you been given of the Holy Spirit? All. God's Word is very instructive on how to live in a way that's godly and how to love your neighbor and how to love your enemies. How much have you been given? Is it, is it so, um, so much of a riddle that you can't even figure it out? No. That part actually is incredibly clear, regardless of whether you understand which beast kingdom is what. So godliness is not a riddle, and it's also not a burden. It's a gift. And so that's what Paul wants from the people, and he wants for them to do this because they remember that their eternity is set. Even before the foundation of the world, I know, mind-blowing, I don't get it either, but I'm glad it's true. That they have been chosen, so it's not about them. It's not, and that's good news. And we do ourselves and our walk with Christ a great disservice when we make it too much about us. And we're prone to do that, myself included. And so he moves from there to say, now, Titus, given that that's the goal, you're going to need some help, right? And, and notice, for him to call Titus to have elders, is telling, is, he's telling Titus what? You're not a lone ranger. You cannot do this by yourself. You cannot be a super pastor on the island of Crete. You are going to need help, which is true of every pastor and every church and every location. Would that we would remember that. 
And so he says, you got to pick from this broken group of people. you got to kind of sift through the, the broken pottery and try to find something that's whole. And how you do that is you look at how they, do, how they deal with their family. If they're not faithful to their wife, they will not be faithful to the church because the church is never going to be as nice to them as the wife is. And they need to show some fruit of their missionality by virtue of the lives of their children. I didn't say this last week, but children. If there's children in here, and there are, listen to me. You ultimately have a great impact on what your mom and dad can do in terms of the mission of God. I know that can be a heavy crown to bear, but the good news is it's not all on you. So how you live already is beginning to matter. Even if you are but four or five. And so he says, look at the family. And then he goes on to say, now, not only is it about the family, but they have to have certain characteristics in terms of their vices and their virtues, if you remember. They've got to be above reproach. The people in the community have to be able to see clearly who and what they are. It's not just about what they say. It's about what they do, word and deed. And so he calls him to choose of these men and set them up in every town. Now, if you were Titus and you were looking at Crete, what would you turn to Paul and say about that? Well, but here's the good news. Who provides everything that's needed for the life of the church, for the life of the world? God does. And if Paul called Titus to find these men, guess what? There are. Exactly how many he needs. And that's good news to us, the church, so we don't have to sweat about these things near as hard as we think we do. It's not incumbent upon Titus to make these men what they are. Notice what Paul says. Choose of those who are already exhibiting the characteristics because the Spirit has already essentially been at work on the Isle of Crete. You will have everything you need. Trust me. Let's go forward. And now he's going to turn and talk to him about how to deal with the false teachers because anywhere that Christianity begins to crop up, what is Satan always quick to want to do? Cut it down. It's always easier to cut down something in its initial gross stages than once it has gained some deep root systems, right? So anytime there's a new work or a faltering work, know that Satan will come and he will work incredibly hard to destroy it. This church has felt that at times when it was teetering and Satan seemed to be much at work and yet it held to the glory and grace of God. And so he's saying, deal with these false teachers do not let them make any headway. But there's a very interesting way in which he talks about dealing with the false teachers. And it's almost shocking to us because it's not the way that we think about dealing with false teachers. We think about dealing with false teachers with extreme prejudice. Militantly, he says to deal with them as hopeful future family members. And that is, should be good news to us because if he would want a false teacher to be a family member, someone who's actually trying to work to destroy the work of the church, how much more you who are not a false teacher? How much grace is this? It's incomprehensible. It's beautiful. And would that that would be our position. And that requires that we trust, right? Because most of the time we approach the idea of a false teacher, we think if they're already teaching false stuff, they're too far gone. You can't say, you can't do anything with them. They're hardened. Is that true of you? Who of you is too far gone? None. Because Christ saves to the uttermost. How far is the uttermost? Further than you can comprehend. And so that's good news to us. So would that we would learn from this. And so as we step into the text, keep that in mind. 
And what I want to ask you is, what's the best defense against false teaching? How do we protect this church from false teaching? Is it that I know what every single one of you are reading? Is it that I come to every single time you gather with other Christians and talk about Christianity? Is it that I set up a system of moles who will report back to me what it is you're saying so that I can find you out? Because that works, right? We've seen that work in government. Not so much. No. How do we do this? How do we as a church, because false teaching, what, what do we know? Anytime the word's being preached, where, where's false teaching? Crouching at the door. Always. So how do we as a whole church protect ourselves? You. You know the word. You know the gospel. You be so versed in it that I can't get away with false teaching from the front. And that you would love me so well that when I am off base, you have the courage to come to me and say, repent and be restored. Now, does that mean that you, every time you, I say something you don't like or in a way you don't like or I say it longer than you wished I'd like, that's not, the same, that's not false teaching, by the way. Let's just get that part straight. I don't mind talking about those things. But that's not false teaching. You can't call false teaching. False teaching is anything that speaks of God, Christ, or the Spirit in a way that is unbiblical and unredemptive. And you too, by the way. It would be false teaching for me to say, hey, I, I think some of you are unredeemable. Well, I need to go find another job. Because if that's the case, ain't none of us redeemable. So, here we have an opportunity, church. Are you growing? And how do you grow in sound doctrine? What's the magic word that I've been hammering away at for weeks and weeks? Starts with a D. Discipleship. You guys are getting it. That's how you grow. If you're not involved in some sort of discipleship, it makes it really hard to grow osmotically in sound doctrine. So this is where we want to emphasize and continue to cultivate. And, and you guys be, be so strong that I can't, I can't get away with anything up here. I'd love that. I'd love it for your sake. I'd love for you to be such Bereans that what we would get, get talk about is not style issues, but instead substantive issues about the Scriptures. Amen? All right, so let's read the text. Verses 10 through 14, hear what God's Word says. For there are many who are insubordinate, empty talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision party. They must be silenced since they are upsetting whole families by teaching for shameful gain what they ought not to teach. One of the Cretans, a prophet of their own, said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. This testimony is true. Therefore, rebuke them sharply that they may be sound in the faith, not devoting themselves to Jewish myths and commands of people who turn away from the truth. Now, he goes from saying, this is why you need elders, because you're going to have people that are constantly on the attack to try to destroy this new work. In fact, they're already at work. They've already somehow infiltrated some of the Christian families on the Isle of Crete, and some of them are actually Jewish. There were Jews who were on Crete for some length of time. And so when he uses the term the circumcision party, he's referring to the Jews. These were probably Judaizers. Folks, if you remember from the book of Galatians, it would come in and say, hey, I know you know Jesus. 
But do you know the feast days? Do you know the festivals? And have you been circumcised? Men only, obviously. And so they're trying to add things to Jesus that don't belong. And so it's actually causing problems among these families. It's causing these families to stumble. Now, what does that do to the future pipeline of elders for the church? Cuts it off. You see what Satan is doing here is he's trying to ensure there is no leadership pipeline, that there is no real future for the church. Let's start by destroying the families from the inside out, and you will have nobody that can serve, nobody who can make disciples, nobody who's a disciple maker. And so these, these folks are causing a lot of problems. And notice what he says. He says they're insubordinate, right? How many of you people, how many of you are managers and you think, one of the great qualities I look for in someone to work for me is insubordination. Right? I just love somebody who, who, who contradicts me at every turn. I just, it's just it's something that's fun. It just makes life lively. No, these folks are insubordinate, which means that they are unwilling to submit to the apostles' teaching. They're unwilling to recognize the authority that's already been given. They think they have been given a revelation themselves. Let me make this really clear. There is no new revelation. And none of you are so special that you have received a particular revelation that no one else in the history of the world has ever received. Right? Once you start thinking that, be forewarned and repent. There's nothing new truly under the sun on these kinds of issues. And we've got to remember the most special person in the world's already come and gone. He sits at the right hand of the Father. We don't need another Jesus. So there is no, you are so specially gifted that the church has been crippled until you showed up in 2016. But sometimes it feels like you, some of that's going on in you. And that's not okay, but you still have room to repent. Notice what Paul said. Rebuke them sharply so that, why? They can get away from here and let's not have to deal with those people. No, so that they could become sound in the faith. And so often this happens. You've got insubordinate people who are unwilling to submit to the leadership, unwilling to submit to the Scripture, unwilling to submit to the way things are set up. Just know that if you're insubordinate, there is no place for you in leadership here. You can repent, and you can be of sound doctrine, and then you can be of leadership here. But insubordination is an automatic out. Secondly, he says, they're empty talkers. So this is referring to some things that he's actually talked about in some other letters. They're, they get all tangled. This is the group of people who they always want to talk about stuff that don't matter, right? They, they, they have some theory about um, uh, Melchizedek that is way more than the Bible says about it, Right? And they, they, want to talk about, they want to talk about men that were created before Adam, the pre-Adamites, right? They, they, they want to talk about how the earth is 7.5 billion years old, and they will not budge one way or the other because they know beyond a shadow of a doubt. And anybody who doesn't go with them on this are morons. I'm citing true stories to you. Fortunately, none of them come from here, thank God. But as an elder at New City Church, we had to deal with this kind of stuff all the time. People wanted to have a platform, and they wanted to make empty talk as anything that carries you away from the redemptive story and makes a mountain out of a molehill or gets all tangled up in some genealogical issue that doesn't make a hill of beans or any sense 
where they take and run with something so small from the book of Obadiah that you're just wondering, well, use your energy for something better. And then it goes on to say, not only are they empty talkers, but they're actually deceivers. They're wanting to gather a crowd. They're wanting a group of people to go with them to support this insane idea. They want a, a group of people to lift them up. That's why it says that they do this for evil gain, essentially. This was a problem that actually was in the Old Testament as well. That priests would teach for unjust gain. And these men are charging people for these goofy ideas. Many of you have paid them by buying their books. If you're not careful, you must be discerning. And be careful that you are willing to submit when you're confronted with it. A friend of mine who I, I loved dearly, um, I, I don't think I'll name the book just, just in case some of you have read it and you're not ready to hear it, that it's, it's, it's a, an abomination. But uh, anyway, she was reading this book and she was so excited about it that she began to talk about it all the time. And so I said, uh, hey, can I have a copy of that book? Can I just borrow it for a second? I, I, I went and read it. I, I can speed read, which is, I guess, dangerous when it comes to false doctrine, but I was able to, it was false pretty quick. It wasn't, he didn't hide it much. And basically the premise of the book was, is, hey, Jesus was great and all, but, but really what the world needs is for me to have a dream where I get, and this will give it away, I think, if you've read it, a dream where I, I, I went to hell. I need to come back and tell you guys about hell so you won't go because Christ wasn't really sufficient. Does that sound like false doctrine to you? And my friend is very bright, but she got so excited about this. And I, it was a lot of fun to confront her. It wasn't. And I had to go to her and I said, I'm not giving you this book back. In fact, I'm going to burn it. Uh, I'm not a big book burner, but this one ought to be burned. And you need to stop talking about it and you need to repent because what you're saying is that this is wrong. And she and I are still friends and we're the closest of friends. And she thanked me wholeheartedly and she repented and, and was able to step into sound doctrine. She showed humility. So I, I use that example to say all of us are capable at some point in time. All of us are capable about getting on some hobby horse, about reading something that we think finally will have a bigger impact than what we currently have available to us. All of us think that we, we're, we're all capable, by the way. Um, I'm pretty sure, I, I, in fact, I know I've done it. I've made more out of something than I should have early on and had to repent and go back and say I was wrong. I'm sure I'll do it again, and I need you to help me. And so Paul says these folks are deceivers. They're, they're, they're trying to do bad things, and they need to be silenced. Now, if you're like me, as I read that, they must be silenced. i, I got to be honest. I know you guys think I'm like crazy confrontational. I'll be like, heck yeah, let's do some of that. Now, that actually makes me cringe a little bit. Because that feels, that feels like we're, we're, we're limiting the conversation, that we are in some way, shape, or form taking the dialogue out of the process. And so, so they're strong words, but, but what he's essentially saying is what they need to be silenced by is not screaming, shouting, and, and being beaten over the head. They need to be silenced by sound doctrine. It's sound doctrine that silences this insanity. So what we need to be able to do is combat it openly with sound doctrine in a firm conviction that it can have an impact, right? In order to, to rebuke someone, you've got to believe that what you're saying can change them. You've got to believe that sound doctrine is actually powerful. 
And I've seen it many times. Much more powerful than my arguments and rhetoric of persuasion. And so, so Paul is saying, you got, you got to stand on this. So what will silence them is not you being ugly to them, not you kicking them out. But it is sound doctrine that puts this kind of stuff to rest. And so that's what he's calling for Titus to be able to do as well as the elders. And he makes it clear that, that, that there's a Cretan poet. Now this could be one of two poets that you may or may not have read. Uh, Epimenides. Um, or I'm sure I'm going to butcher this, but uh, uh, Culemachus, the hymn of Zeus, actually says specifically a part of this. And Paul may have been putting those things together. He calls him a prophet here, but he calls him a prophet not in the sense that he's recognized as a biblical prophet, but as one who has foretold the truth about his own people. And he's done this in poetry of some kind. It doesn't matter which poet it is necessarily. Uh, what matters is that Paul is showing his missional understanding of the greater culture. He's engaged with who and what they are because he wants to be able to speak to them at a level that will hit their heart. He showed the same thing at Mars Hill. So there's a sense in which part of how we will do sound doctrine is not just to read our Bibles, which by the way you should and should be able to deal with, you should also be exegeting the culture. You should also be trying to figure out what makes people tick, what makes them move, what moves them, what narratives and stories and myths are defining them. And instead of casting stones at that, use it for missional good. Now, we are all different in our gifts and abilities when it comes to that. And I know some of you that makes you a little nervous because of some of what culture puts forward show wisdom. Don't think you can watch anything and everything and be okay. Don't think you need to dive way, way, way down into the muck and mire of what culture is. But you need to be familiar enough with what's going on so that you can be an effective discipler and disciple maker and you can confront false teaching. So, after he quotes the poet, he goes on to say, hey, this happens to be true of them. They're, they are liars. They are evil beasts. That means that they are given over to their passions in a way that they show no self-control. Does this sound familiar at all? They are lazy and greedy in their laziness, so they'll do anything to earn a buck. But what they're not going to do is the hard thing to be able to grow in sanctification. These false teachers are just doing what false teachers have done from the beginning. Remember when Satan said to Adam and Eve... Did God really mean that you were created in his image? Because I don't think you are. And I think it's going to be, I think it's going to be a laborious process. But hey, I got a shortcut for you. All you got to do is eat of this tree and boom, you're God. How about that? Remember what he said to Jesus in the wilderness? He said, Jesus, I know, I know, I know you, you, you think you're king, but you're not yet king. Let's be honest. You're out here in the wilderness with me. And, and I'll tell you what. I've got a crown for you that requires no cross. I can give it to you right now. That's what it means for us to be kind of lazy and greedy at the same time. It means that we, we want glorification, but we don't want sanctification. We don't want justification. We just want glorification straight out with straight no chaser. Nothing with it. We, we just want it straight up. We don't want to suffer. We don't want to be shaped. We don't want to be put in the crucible. We don't want to have to wait for it. 
And so this is what lurks in the heart of us all that also lurks in the heart of the false teacher. And that's something we have to recognize. Do you not think it lurks in my heart too? Because it does. I would love all kind of shortcuts. And if I were given half a chance, I might run after them. But the Spirit holds me fast, and I am convicted often. Praise God. Sometimes I fall. And praise God, I have the grace to get back up again. And the same is true for you too, right? Even if we were to describe you this way, the same would be true that you too should be called to repentance and sound doctrine so that you could be restored. Amen? Your current struggle, your, your current stumbling, your current evil beastliness, your current um, insubordination, your current lying, your current lazy gluttony, your current whatever it is, is just what's current but doesn't have the final say. And if you, you are willing to repent of those things, whether it's to have justification be bestowed upon you for the first time, or so that you can grow in sanctification and better understand your glorification, your bestness as it currently stands in Christ, which, by the way, has not been tarnished by your stumbling. If you're willing to repent of that and return to sound doctrine, you will be blessed. You will be able to stand firmly upon the foundation. You will be able to stand amidst the mighty fortress that is our God. And you will have the benefit of not just the wonderful cross, but the even more glorious resurrection truth that you could walk in newness of life. Amen? So if the false teachers are worthy of redemption, how much more you and I? And so what's interesting to me is uh, I meet with a group of pastors <coughs> in the Northwest Georgia Presbytery. We meet once a month, and it's a, it's a mixed bag of us. And, uh, and we've been reading a book called God in the Whirlwind. Um, and um, last week, one of the guys led the chapter and was talking about the parable of the prodigal son, and he said that it really kind of sparked within him to think about who does he identify with in this story. But more than who he identifies with, who does that then cause him to be more tough against in his preaching? And so he said, he said, hey, I'm, a, I'm, the, I'm the elder brother who stayed outside, and I, I wear out the prodigals. And the other guy said, well, I'm also the elder brother who stayed outside, but I've discovered grace, so I wear out the elder brothers that aren't getting grace yet. Of course, it was my turn. I said, well, I'm the prodigal. And I go after the brother who stays outside and the prodigal who cheapens grace. And the guy who was oldest in the group said, I'm all of the above and all of the above. If you live long enough, you'll do it all. Right? But what was important about that is it helped us all to kind of step back and go, wait a second, wait a second. The father loved both. He went out to both, if you remember, right? And, and beckoned them both into the party. What we don't know is if the elder brother ever went in. It doesn't tell us. We do know that God loves, obviously, the Pharisee because we have this letter from Paul, who was a false teacher, by the way. Not only a false teacher, but he was killing folks and taking great joy in it. And remember, Jesus showed up and said, Saul, why do you kick against the goads? Now, what does that mean? He said, why are you trying to make happen what you can't make happen? Submit in your insubordination to the sovereignty of God. Repent and believe and come in and teach. I'm going to use you to teach sound doctrine. And so what's important about that is that we remember 
There's not a favorite. There's just not. And I want you to forgive me for the times at which I have clearly shown a different tone toward the older brother. And at times where I have clearly shown a different tone toward those who I think are guilty of cheap grace and their prodigalness. Know that I'm straining too to grow in that. And there's a book that I've yet to read uh, by Sinclair Ferguson called The Whole Christ. And one of the things it speaks about Thomas Boston, who was uh, a Puritan who was during this thing called the Marrow Controversy. It says that as he wrestled through kind of dealing with this issue, that his preaching didn't change really one iota with the exception of one thing. His tone toward those he had been so hard against changed in such a way that it reflected the same grace that he extended to the other ones. And I want you to pray for me that that would be true of me. That, that my tone, that, 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 that my... Um, my affection would be just as strong for those who are different, clearly different than me, because I, as the prodigal who came in, uh, am very different in the sense of the elder brother who doesn't want me in there. And I'm also different than the prodigal who stays out and uses their grace to cheapen the whole thing. I want to grab that guy in a headlock too. And so... Would you pray that your pastor would grow in that so that those two people would recognize they're welcome here? And more importantly, they're welcome in the kingdom. And I'd appreciate that. And would you also lovingly confront me when I don't do so well at that? That's a tough thing to give a room full of, I don't know how many people, license to come get me. Now, make sure the line is in order. <laughs> don't all jump me at once. Let me take it one at a time, okay? But know that I am, I am longing to be better at this. And this verse has convicted me deeply. Because see, I would have been the ones to jack up the false teachers and show them no mercy and no grace. And this verse has hit me hard in the heart. And I want to do what the Lord would do. What the Lord would have me to do that's going to most glorify Him. That's where the power is. So, what should be the primary goal of rebuking a false teacher? Redemption. Redemption always. What would it look like if we as a church were firm but loving to even the false teachers? As we look back at the text, verses 15 and 16, he says, to the pure, all things are pure, but to the defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure. But both their minds and their consciences are defiled. They profess to know God, but they deny Him by their words, their works. They are detestable, disobedient, and unfit for any good work. Now, when Paul speaks of the, the, the pure issue, there's a, a sense in which he may be speaking of something that he's addressed in Corinthians and a couple of other places when he talks about um, that, hey, you can eat meat sacrificed to idols because those idols don't exist. There is, they, are, they are just fairy tales. So that, there's nothing actually physically wrong with that meat. You can eat it. There's a sense in which he may be hearkening all the way back to where Peter says, uh, has the vision in Acts chapter 10 where he sees that there's nothing unclean to those who are redeemed. To the pure, all things become pure. They become agents of redemption in some way, shape, or form. This is transformative and powerful. 
The contra also is true, but to the defiled, even if it's good, the person who's defiled takes and twists it and destroys it. He makes it clear that those who are in this category, those who are not redeemed, are detestable and disobedient, and they're unfit for any good work, and you know who they are by their works, right? We've heard this before. We've talked about this in here before. I know what you believe by how you conduct yourself. People can say, and I, I push against this from time to time, they'll say, yeah, I know. No, you don't. You don't know until you act on it. It's just a cognitive possibility. It's just potential. You don't yet know in the truest sense of the word until you actually conduct yourself in light of said head knowledge. Right? And so we want to be a people who are cognizant of how our works or recognize how our deeds, how we live, matters. And that what we do is not just for the life of the church. It is for the life of the world. You don't go out and witness. You are witnessing with everything you do. Everything. Good, bad, or indifferent. Me too. And so Paul makes it clear that it's clear to know who these folks are by their deeds. And that he recognizes that those who are ungodly are the exact opposite of what an elder ought to be, and they're the exact opposite of what he has come to do. These three things are opposite faith, knowledge of truth, and godliness. And so these false teachers are antithetical to what it means to be a Christian. So we need to be a people who examine our lives often. This is one of the gifts of the Lord's Day Sabbath, is that you can take time to say, Lord, examine me. Examine me and show me how I have glorified you or failed to glorify you and how I can grow in that area because of your grace. And amen. So listen to what John Stott says about this passage. And I think this is helpful. It's in your bulletin. He says, these three phenomena, and what he's referring to is uh, the detestable, disobedient, and unfit for any good work. These three phenomena regarding the false teachers and their disciples provides us with three valid tests to apply to any and every system. We have to ask three questions about it. First, is its origin divine or human, revelation or tradition? Like before you go running off on something, you need to find out, hey, is this actually even in the Bible? Right? So people quote, God doesn't give you more than you can handle. Just so you know that's not in the Bible, it ain't even close. In fact, quite the opposite is true. God gives you way more than you can handle, so you'll come to him. Right? We did the Job series. You, some of you live this. It's just not true, but yet we kind of operate under that, you know, um, uh, cleanliness is next to godliness, because cleanliness is redemptive somehow. Right? No, it's not, as it turns out. Uh, and so don't fall for the easy stuff, but also take stock of other things as well. Things that you've made into big issues that may not even be in the Bible or a twist on things that are or a mountain out of a molehill. And then he goes on, he says, secondly, is its essence inward or outward, spiritual or ritual? Thirdly, is its result a transformed life or merely a formal creed? True religion is divine in its origin, spiritual in its essence, and moral in its effect. If there is no manifestation, if there's no outward working, if there's no presence of godliness, something is deeply wrong. Look at the fruit on the tree. 
We live in a society where we're so, so careful. Who, who am I? Judge not, lest you be judged. Which is a misapplication of that passage, by the way. What he's saying is, don't think that you get to decide who goes to hell and who goes to heaven. You don't. That's judgment. Judgment is not you saying something is sin or righteous. If you can't judge between those things, you're in trouble. If you can't say anything to anybody about that in their life, you can't do what Paul's called us to do in rebuking false teachers. You just got to let it run its course and step back and hope there's enough left for you to deal with when it's over. That can't be what that means. That can't be what Jesus meant. And so, so we have to be able to discern. We have to be able to say clearly, hey, something's wrong. This doesn't add up. And we got to be able to love each other in that and give each other room to grow in it when things don't add up. And so, what do we learn from this passage? Two things, among many others, that you could learn. One, false teachers are to be rebuked with sound doctrine for the purpose of their repentance and restoration and the protection of the flock. Two, our works reveal who we truly are regardless of what we say. It doesn't matter what you say, it matters what you do, but what you do should match up with what you say. Listen to what John Calvin says. Beautiful, beautiful way to look at this. Um, Calvin says, How wonderful it is that God's plan is to call such a wicked people who are infamous for their vices to be among the first to share in his gospel. It is just as marvelous that the kindness of God's heavenly grace is given to people who are not worthy to even live on this earth. So, in that corrupt country of Crete, as though at the heart of hell, Christ's church held on and kept expanding even though it was infected by the evil habits that prevailed there. Amen. That God is so good that he can plant a church in such a difficult and awful place and call such broken people. How much hope should that give us given the current context? So as we close out this morning, I, I do want to say to you, grow in sound doctrine. That means be a disciple. Be investing in your spiritual good. Practice the Lord's Day Sabbath. Use devotional material to, to grow your, your spirit and to grow your mind and to grow your deeds. Use prayer. Use fellowship. Be a disciple. Be a disciple maker. Because again, you have no idea what's coming in six months or a year. That what you're not doing today will set you up to be utterly wrecked when it comes. We as a church have no idea how the Lord may graciously bring us some very difficult people. Cretans, if you will. Now, are we going to be ready to love them? I wish he would bring Cretans. I think he's probably brought some, but to say that makes some of you go, wait, it's about, you me, you me, you me. I'm just talking about me. So let us prepare for the good, the godliness, the redemption that we should be participating in instead of trying to be a fortress that looks so beautiful on the outside but is just a whitewashed sepulcher on the inside. Let's pray. Father, thank you that you redeem such broken and ungodly people like us would that we not, would not forget that and would that we would be careful not to be harder on 
those that are different than us or those who are even like us. God, help us to live in a greater grace and a greater mercy because that would reflect your glory because that's what you do. You are unfathomable grace and unfathomable mercy and unfathomable love. Let us walk in that, that newness of life. May we not see disciple-making as a burden, but instead a gift that would help us to grow in our faith, that would help us to grow in our knowledge, that would help us to grow in our godliness and our appreciation of what you have done for us in the finished work of Christ. We pray for this in Christ's name. Amen.